Welcome to Talos Takes, the security podcast for everyone from the C-suite to the front lines. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talos Takes. I am joined by Edmund from the Talos Outreach team. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it, as always. Hey, thanks for having me. So today we're going to be talking about Sapphire Stealer. This is an information-stealing malware that you helped with the research and, and writing on for the Talos blog as always, I'll link to it in the show notes here. And for starters, I just kind of wanted to cover the basics of this threat. Like when we say something is an information stealer, it's kind of self-explanatory, just right in the name there. But is there anything in particular about Sapphire Stealer that makes this threat stand out? You know, I think it's just, um, you know, how simple it is um, from a from a code execution perspective, right? There, there weren't a whole lot of bells and whistles, but at the end of the day, there, there doesn't really need to be. Um, it's able to achieve its mission objective, which is to compromise and exfiltrate sensitive information from victim machines, and it's able to do that fairly well. So the focus of your blog post is that Sapphire Stealer went open source, and someone, we don't really know if it's a creator, an operator, or whatever, but someone published its code to GitHub at the end of 2022. This is kind of like a trend that we've been writing about for a few months now. In that, you know, a lot of malware is going open source and then other threat actors are stealing it or borrowing that code in, in some form or fashion. We've written about that and talked about it on the show. So I'm kind of wondering about the why behind this trend. Do you feel like there's anything that the creator or anyone else could gain from putting this, just like putting this up on GitHub? Or do you kind of just think it's like, hey, we want to cause chaos? You know, I, I mean, I don't think it's really a, a monolithic type type thing. I don't, I don't think you can really look at, you know, every actor that puts code up on a, an open source code repository, you know, with the same motivations or the same, you know, reasoning as to why they committed that code there. Uh, some people do it and they say it's for educational purposes. You know, some people do it, um, you know, as a proof of concept. Um, we see similar trends when there's a vulnerability out in the wild and you see people racing to, um, put exploit payloads as quickly as possible out on the same repositories, right? Um, so there's probably a myriad of different reasons why someone would would commit code like this to um, a platform like GitHub. Um, an, another motivation might be to uh, make analysis and tracking of threat actors using that more difficult, right? If you're the only person with this with the source code and someone sees activity in the wild, right, they're going to immediately be able to attribute it to you know, a singular entity, whereas, you know, if the, the code's open source, um, obviously it's going to be picked up by a lot of different threat actors, which makes tracking them individually much more difficult. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of building off of that, I think that because we've noticed other threat actors deploying this in the wild based off of the fact that it's gone open source, like you mentioned, it, it does make it kind of more difficult in some ways, but does it kind of complement like, how does it complicate matters for defenders exactly? Because I know, like, obviously attribution is not something that we try to do a whole lot of, but that certainly gets difficult. And does it make detection or prevention or anything like that more difficult? I, I think when you, when you start to see um, several variants of the same core code base um, begin to be, you know, used in the wild or distributed, or you see people making changes, it can often, you know, change what a defender would need to be looking for, right? If you think about the original... Uh, version of Sapphire Stealer, all of the data was exfiltrated via SMTP or email, right? Whereas in later variants that were being uploaded to malware repositories, threat actors had added Telegram capabilities, Discord capabilities. So if you're only 
familiar with the original version of Sapphire Stealer, you may not be looking for any of those other non-email related communications to kind of give you an indicator that that something is in your environment that you need to dig into or initiate incident response for. And one of the other aspects of your research is that we were able to learn actually quite a bit about one of the groups who deployed Sapphire Stealer because they, they had some pretty bad internal operational security. So I'm curious what you can kind of tell us about this particular case, like what information were we able to glean uh, and why you felt like it was worth calling out in the post? Yeah, so I think that's one of the byproducts of, you know, open sourcing a code base like this, um, you know, not specific to Sapphire Stealer, but just in general, uh, the widespread availability of these sort of, of toolkits uh, makes it such that the barrier to entry for threat actors to begin using them uh, to compromise systems, exfiltrate sensitive information, et cetera, becomes significantly lower than it, it would be if they had to write the malware themselves, develop it from scratch and, and try to um, achieve this, the same objective. And, and I think one of the things that you, you begin to see with, with some of these code bases like this is that threat actors that maybe are more inexperienced or uh, don't um, operate with as mature of an operation um, begin to, to hop on and, and start using those same toolkits, which, you know, opens up situations like with Sapphire Stealer, where, you know, there were several notable operational security issues that allowed us to obtain a significant amount of information about the individual behind the specific campaign. And as always, I want to close out this episode by talking about detection. For information stealers, is there anything specifically users should be considering? Like, obviously, for this malware, we have the quote-unquote traditional coverage in place, like snort rules and all the other good Cisco secure stuff that you get that we outlined in the post. But is there anything else that users should be doing to either better protect their information or, like, be vigilant about info stealers? So one of the things that, that users should, should definitely, you know, be aware of and be implementing is uh, things like multi-factor authentication, right? When you think about an information stealer, uh, they're primarily, uh, you know, trying to steal application-related data or browser credentials that may be cached or, you know, things of that nature. And so a lot of those credentials can then be used by the threat actor to access infrastructure accounts, networks, whatever they were able to obtain from a victim machine. So by being able to leverage something like multi-factor authentication, having, you know, some secondary way to uh, protect an account versus just the username and password is really essential because even in a situation where someone may fall victim to Sapphire Stealer, you know, that, that's a way to minimize the potential damage uh, if an attacker would still need, you know, a, an app on the, the victim's phone that has codes that are entered at the same time that you authenticate or some other mechanism to provide an enhanced layer of account-related protection. All right, awesome. Well, thanks as always, Edmund, for providing your time and expertise to the show. I appreciate you coming on, man, and hope you have a good weekend. Awesome. You do the same. Thanks for having me.